welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Eric Siegel, Kathy and Lawrence Ash, Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law, and Adam Feldman, creator of the Supreme Court blog, Empirical SCOTUS. We will discuss their article, The Elite Teaching the Elite, Who Gets Hired by the Top Law Schools, which will be published in the Journal of Legal Education. So welcome to the show, uh, Eric and, and Adam, and specifically, welcome back, Eric. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. I think I may have been one of your first, and you were all ready to go from the outset. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So I'm really excited about this as well, because I think this paper makes some really important observations about legal academia and especially about who gets to participate in, in legal academia. I, I wonder if we could start by just having you describe your research question and sort of why you asked it and how you framed it. So this was originally, I think, my idea, and it had been something that had been bothering me for a long time, because I hold a lot of conferences, and I do a lot of at Georgia State, and I'm lucky enough to be able to bring people there and that kind of thing. And I was start, I read a lot of resumes. <laughs> so this was not an empirical thing, but it felt like every time I had somebody from a top 10 ranked law school, they went to a top 10 ranked law school. And over 10 years, this just seemed, I've been doing this a long time, Brian and Adam, 29 years. Over the last 10 years, it just seemed like this always happened every time. And I knew that's, I knew that couldn't be right. So I asked my research assistant to begin the process of doing the data mining to see what it was. And the numbers came back extremely startling. So I knew I had a paper, but I also know my limits and I am not a data person. Adam will attest to this 10 times over. Um, I, I, I don't do, deal with numbers very well. I can understand 95% of something. That's about it. So I looked around and Adam was, um, and I had known each other on Twitter. And I loved his work on empirical SCOTUS. I think it is so important. Um, I called him and said, I know this is not your thing, but I really need someone like you. Would you be interested? He said, yes. At which point my GRA transferred, I think, a lot of data to Adam, and I'll let him take it from there. Yeah, so uh, Eric uh, got in touch with me and uh, was thinking about this paper, and it seemed like a really interesting idea. And I also uh, had admired Eric's work from afar uh, for a while uh, at that point, and uh, he seemed like a really interesting uh, and engaging person to work with that was uh, looking at questions from a little bit of a different perspective from my own. I tend to look at things uh, quantitatively in terms of statistics. And uh, Eric, uh, he, he thinks about big ideas and uh, how they affect law. Definitely not statistics. And uh, clearly not. Um, but uh, this also touched on a research interest of mine uh, kind of tangentially, uh, where this was looking at how people come into legal academia, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in the study of judicial behavior. And uh, judicial behavior is, is often framed in terms of academics, and academics become judges. So there are a lot of, a lot of links uh, between uh, kind of the genesis of this project and what it discussed and thought, and thought about, and uh, some of the strands of my, my research as well. So it seemed like a really interesting thing to, uh, to jump in on. And Brian, let me just and, and let me just add um, right at the top because I have to do this. Um, this paper would not have been written, or at least not by me. 
and Adam were not from Mark Tushnet. And let me just explain that really quickly. Um, when I had this idea um, and the numbers came in, we'll talk about the numbers in a minute. I'll let Adam do that. But it was going to be the reality is if you want to teach at a top 10 law school, you have to go to a top 10 law school, full stop, uh, if you have an American law degree. And Mark Tushnet has been a mentor of mine for 30 years. And I wrote him and, and, and talked to him about it. And he had some interesting ideas. But then I said, Mark, I have a problem in that I can't have this sounding like sour grapes because I can't do that. I need to write a footnote to suggest that because and I wish I should make it funny if I should make it humorous. Um, we, I, Mark helped me write that footnote. Um, the, the effect of it is, is that I've never tried to leave Georgia State. I, um, I don't want to leave Georgia State. This is not about that. This is about diversifying the top elite ranked law schools for very important reasons. And it's not personal to me in any sense other than I want those schools to turn out better lawyers for all of us. Well, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about how you structure the study in question and sort of in a big picture sense, what your findings look like. I, I wrote a lot of text about the numbers, the preliminary numbers, then Adam checked, rechecked the numbers, and I'll let Adam go through the numbers. Yeah, so so the kind of original idea was to look at the top law schools and to see where the professors were coming from, where they had uh, where they'd gone to and graduated from uh, law school. And, uh, you know, our hypothesis was that there was going to be uh, an extremely skewed percentage of the, the teachers that had went to top 10 law schools and especially skewed towards Harvard and Yale, who were kind of known to be the, uh, the feeder schools to legal academia. Um, but I wanted to uh, kind of expand this uh, to a greater breadth uh, of, of schools. Eric had already kind of thought about this. You know, for me, this is more about checking for robustness and to make sure that uh, we're not just framing this in terms of a few schools. So we ended up actually uh, looking at many schools within the top 100, not only at the top 10 law schools. And then we were able to make comparisons through sets so we could actually take schools uh, from one to 10 and then compare the percentage of teachers that went to top 10 law schools in those schools to professors at uh, schools that are ranked lower down U.S. news uh, list of top 100 law schools. So, uh, so you know, I, I think we were able to take a kind of uh, broad methodology using pretty uh, simple descriptive statistics and say something about legal academia generally and not only uh, specific to uh, to the, the top law schools in the nation. So, so I guess I'll just jump right in and say, after Adam got done with his magic, uh, in, in conjunction with my GRA, to be honest, um, at the beginning, this, this thing, you know, if you're not a numbers person, just listen to this one. At the time that we did this survey, which is like two and a half years ago now, so the numbers are not current, but still, I'm pretty sure it's a pretty good snapshot. There were, for example... Um, 152 tenured or tenure track professors at Harvard and Yale with American law degrees, 152, all but three went to a top 10 law school. And one of those three was the librarian. That's an amazing number. That's 149 out of 152. Um, and then it turns out the more devastating number, I think, is or as devastating. If you're to the top 10 ranked U.S. news law schools, and Adam can tell you more about what exactly there was some 
You know, there's, there's some blurriness at, at nine and 10, but leaving that aside, 94.8%. So let's call it 95. I do know how to round up. 95% of law professors at those schools went to a top 10 law school. 95%. We, 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 you know, found it's just, you know, ex- extremely skewed towards uh, these, these top law schools. And, uh, and, you know, it, it also says something and, and, you know, I think, that Eric can speak to this as well, but about the the hiring philosophy at, at these schools, and uh, it, you know, there, there's really a, a normative argument that can be made for when we when we look at these stark numbers. You know, 95% uh, of the professors at top 10 law schools went to a, a uh, top 10 uh, law school. Um, when we look at the individual schools in the top 10, all of them had over 90% of their faculty come from top 10 law schools. I mean, the, the numbers are just uh, pretty, pretty astounding. And, you know, that, that's, that says something just, you know, as, as uh, you know, when I would look at studies of judges and how judges tend to, uh, especially federal judges tend to go to similar schools, these professors tend to go to similar, similar schools. And there's something that you get that's homogenized at the point of being in this, this really, uh, you know, unique space at the top. So, and, and there were two other things that I wanted to say about this. Um, I mean, when I was thinking about the article, one is I'm just not a believer in standardized tests, Brian, and I'm just not, and we don't have to debate that here, but, but the reality is if you don't ACLSAT, the LSAT, you're never teaching at a top 10 law school, no matter what you do after. Now, you know, Elizabeth Warren got to Harvard from SMU. You know, but 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 effectively, effectively, no matter how great a law professor, I was teasing Randy Barnett the other day. If Randy and Erin Shimarinsky, they they actually have a believe it or not, they have a cousin in common, um, and they're from the same part of Chicago. Um, so couldn't take two more different people. You, you could not t- get two more different people. Um, take their scholarship and combine it, and they both have you know incredible scholarship. Erin um, is the second or third most famous, most cited scholar of all time. Put it together, give it, and that's just, I'm just not making it personal, but give it to me at this point in my career or even 10 years earlier, I'm not getting hired by a top 10 law school, period, full stop. Just not. I went to Vanderbilt, which is ranked 17. Um, there's one Vanderbilt professor in the top 20 law schools right now. Um, so that, that was important to me. But I also wanted to mention that before I even called Adam, or, well, one was before and then two were after. I talked to friends, good, trusted friends of mine at Yale and Harvard, and I, I, I gave them the preliminary data my GRA had come up with, and I said, my GRA is not a, an expert on this, so you know I'm going to get this confirmed, but let's assume this data is true. It turned out to be exactly right. I have a good GRA, or maybe we're off by one school. But anyway, um, and I said, what, what do, you, do you defend this? Because because all the people, oh, somebody NYU too. Because all of these people were progressives and not necessarily snoots, you know, um, and they all defended it, interestingly enough, in, in, in a backhanded kind of way. They all said, well, we wish it was different. But here's what you need to remember, Eric. And by the way, my number one administrative contribution to my law school for 29 years has been recruitment. I've been on the recruitment committee every year but two we've had. One. Um, they said recruitment takes time. I said, really? Uh, no, they said recruitment takes time. It is hard. We get 10 zillion applications. We don't have to go outside the top 10. So why put in the extra work? Now, these are really thoughtful friends of mine. 
to which I said, okay, I, I get that. But you would never make that article about that argument about African-Americans, women, Latinas, gays and lesbians. You would never make the argument that way about them. No, of course not. No, of course not. No, of course not. Well, but this is just, I'm not sure it's as serious, but this is a major issue for legal education that the people you're teaching are going to be, the students you're teaching are going to be teaching the students, you know, are going to be teaching the same students at the same places and more or less the same way over time. Change is not going to happen. And they all had regrets, but they all said it's just not worth the time. And I thought, wow, wow. Well, so I wonder if you could reflect kind of normatively on sort of why you think this is a problem, not just in terms of kind of unfairness, but in terms of actual outcomes. In other words, is is this sort of uniformity of who's teaching at top 10 law schools affecting the kind of education that students are receiving, the sort of atmosphere at the schools. And I guess I also can't help but wonder whether the lack of diversity in educational background has kind of knock-on effects with respect to diversity on other criteria that people might consider more salient. So, so a couple quick points, and, and I'll turn over to Adam. One point um, that I think Adam and I shared is there is obviously a serious class component to this. And I and we cite to studies in our short article that talks about the relationship between the LSAT and class. And I got, again, I don't want to lose sight. This is my personal bugaboo, but I don't want to lose sight of this. If you're 22 years old and really smart and went to Harvard College and had pretty good grades, if you don't date, if you don't, if you don't ace the LSAT, you're not getting into top 10 law school. You will never teach at a top 10 law school. That's too early to make that cut. So that's that's a, that's a, that's a fairness issue. That's a class issue because obviously wealthier people do better on the LSAT. As far as the internal workings of the law school goes, something I, I know a little more than Adam does about because I'm doing this for so long. Um, I think anytime you hire your own at this rate and you don't hire outside a bubble, then you're not going to see change the same way. And, you know, leaving aside Yale, I think Harvard Law School, at least at least during different times of its existence, is wildly reluctant to change. And given um, Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion or a majority opinion in Grutter, the affirmative action case, Grutter versus Bollinger, talks about how important it is that there is diversity at the elite law schools because the elite law schools turn out senators and congressmen and generals and judges and so on. That diversity should in, has a huge, should have an, a, a huge class component. And I think a lot of this is about class. Yeah. So I, I think building on, on what uh, Eric was saying, you know, there, this is a question uh, to some extent about the haves and the have nots. Um, you know, for me, it goes back to, an article um, that I think was very powerful. It talks about the legal system uh, by Mark Lanter um, that really talks about, you know, those who have resources and those that, that don't. And, uh, you know, that resources uh, create an inherent advantage. And, you know, what we're seeing is these bubbles created and uh, really reproduced over and over again when we have the top going back to the top uh, the the kind of opposite uh, side of the coin is that they're not going to other law schools. So we're not seeing diversity from the top move 
down and 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 so that uh, that students in the you know uh, schools, let's say twenty five through one hundred, they're they're getting much less of uh, uh, an education from professors uh, that went to top law school. So we're not seeing diversity on the lower ranks, and then we're also not seeing as much diversity on the upper ranks because we have this this pull, uh, this this uh, magnetism almost from the top law schools pulling back to their own own students. Um, so so it's it's not only that there's this homogenization of education, but that it's being constantly reproduced. So the, there's no real end in sight as long as there's this mindset that there's something essential that is is given uh, in the, the top uh, you know schools in legal academia. Um, and you know with no end in sight, this cycle will be perpetuated over and over again. And let me add one thing to that that is not empirical. So no one mistake this for an empirical observation. It's one after 29 years of recruiting. So we get we, we, we get these books from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, you know, of people going on the market. And those books, are, it's a relatively new phenomenon, maybe 10, 15 years. I don't know exactly. And nowadays, those books are full of people who, whose resumes and writings and stuff has been massaged and worked on by the VAP and other type of programs these schools have. I, I, it, is an, it is amazing to me how few conservatives are in those books. It's just amazing to me. Now, what I've gotten over the years is someone like Randy Barnett or Michael McConnell or somebody calling me up and saying, you know, this one conservative is good. Take a special look at him um, or her. Um, well, it's almost always him, but occasionally her. Um, but I do think this is not part of the article. It's, it's something I've thought about afterwards, but it's really important. I do think the fact that these top 10 law schools, with the exception of Chicago, are overwhelmingly liberal and progressive, and they back their own students so heavily, also contributes to some degree to what I think, without having done the numbers, is an obvious, incredible imbalance between liberals and conservatives in the entry-level law professor market, where conservatives have virtually no chance unless they have a Supreme Court clerkship, in which case all bets are off. But a Harvard-educated or Yale-educated conservative with conservative credentials down the line, their entry-level chances at most law schools are very, very small. And I think part of that is this problem. Just to build on Eric's point, um, one of the interesting things that we talked about, we didn't end up working into our paper, was other types of diversity in, in hiring in legal academia. And uh, some of this was just because of the difficulty in getting data on um, you know, racial diversity, on um, ethnic diversity. Uh, but you know, our, our idea about homogenization in the top ranks wasn't. It, it didn't only start with the notion of going to top law schools. It really, was this idea of uh, kind of a model individual. Um, which, you know, I think, you know, uh, based off of what Eric uh, just said, you know, is this uh, liberal, uh, generally white male. And so it would be interesting, uh, you know, I think with the uh, proper data points to uh, kind of test this argument um, and, and was something that we were interested in doing as well, but just didn't feel like we had 
the proper data to do it. Adam, I'm glad you raised that, Brian, because I, I do. I know I speak for Adam when I say the issue of people of color being hired by these law schools, women. We did we did run the women, and it was about 35 percent, I think, which is, is that right, Adam? About 35 percent. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, astonishing, sorry. astonishingly low. Um, those are all major problems, and we're not suggesting they aren't as important. Or, it was just not this particular paper. Well, I have to say, like looking at the data and kind of thinking it through based on my own personal observations and experience. And again, this is anecdotal, but it seems to me that a certain kind of law student comes into the law school game fully kind of understanding just how hierarchical and status oriented the legal profession and legal academia is. And that leads them to choose a school like Harvard or Yale, whereas there are a lot of other people who maybe don't have the sort of, you know, first gen students or ones who don't have people sort of advising them on how legal education really functions, who maybe aren't as cognizant of how kind of status oriented the profession is. And as a consequence, kind of choose their schools without kind of taking that as much into account. And then in addition, there's a lot of people who come from circumstances that just don't permit them to take on the kinds of moving life change debt burdens that going to a top 10 school might might require and as a consequence choose schools, uh, lower rank schools, precisely because those schools are offering them a financial option that's actually manageable for them. And it seems like that has the unfortunate effect of effectively screening out a lot of those potentially very promising candidates from legal academia. So my Twitter nemesis and friend, Jonathan Adler. I'm glad you're bringing him up. I was thinking about him as well when uh, when Brian uh, made that statement. I, I mean, you know, I disagree with some of Jonathan's scholarship. Some of it is just absolutely astonishingly great. Jonathan tells the story that, that you know, he for economic reasons, I think he went to, I think it was, I think George Mason, but I'm not positive, but he got into all the Ivy leagues, but his life circumstances didn't allow him to go there. Jonathan's scholarship puts him in a place where he could be at a top 10 law school. And maybe it will someday. I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I'm not even if he wants to go, but the point is, had he gone to Yale with the same scholarship, he'd be at UVA now or, or Duke or someplace like that. I'm confident if he wanted to be. And that's a silly, it's a silly cutoff. I mean, it's a, it's a silly reason. I mean, again, I, I, for those listening, I really want to impress. The number is 94.5%. So, you know, to get past that number, and, and Elizabeth Warren, I think, was one of them, maybe. I don't know if that's true or not. But, um, you know, it, it takes someone like Elizabeth Warren to get through. It's, you know, it's, it's just about 95% in the top 10. It's 80% in schools 11 through 25. When when you get through the top 25, you, you just don't have as many uh, uh, students from top law schools to go around. I mean, you, so you're, you're really like, there, there's this filtering process, which is uh, not only uh, screening out candidates for the top, but is also limiting the available options for everywhere else. Um, so there, there just aren't enough students that are interested in legal academia uh, that aren't going to the top 25 schools to even really give uh, much of, uh, of a uh, uh, give much availability 
to schools uh, 26 and below. And one number I wanted to point out, all, all these numbers are astonishing. This is, this, this, this is also astonishing. I think I have this right. The top 25 loss, top 25 ranked law schools, 50% come from Harvard or Yale. 50%. I mean, that really, that number really jumped out at me as well, because I mean, the 95% at the top 10 is astonishing and so kind of so absurdly high that it kind of is distracting. But I was, I was like looking at the other schools and I was like, wow, I mean, like, all of those are super overwhelmingly dominated by top 10 law schools as well. And it almost seems like they're just kind of filling up all the available slots. You know, and I wonder to what extent that's a function of schools seeing hiring on those terms as being somehow beneficial to the prestige of the school and to what extent it's a function of lower rank schools effectively not encouraging or even actively discouraging their graduates from pursuing legal academia? Yeah, those are great questions. I went to Vanderbilt and when I was at Vanderbilt before you guys were born, I think, um, and, uh, in 19, from 1980 to 1983, I don't want to hear if I'm right or wrong about that. Um, when I was there from 80 to 83, Vanderbilt was ranked 17 in the Gorman Report, which used to be the equivalent of U.S. News. Um, Vanderbilt's been ranked 16, 17, or 18 in U.S. News ever since, pretty much every year or 19. Um, Vanderbilt started being able to hire Supreme Court clerks. That was that they couldn't do that in the 80s, but sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, they, they entered that pool. And ever since then, I think, their Vanderbilt's um, – I'm getting in trouble for saying this, but I don't know if it's known anymore as a teaching school. When I was there, it was known as a great teaching school, but I think they've given that away. And one of the things that I think is happening in the top 25 is if you have a Harvard Yale person with a Supreme Court clerkship and you are ranked 19 or 16 or 12 and you can get that person, you are going to drop everything and get that person. So interestingly enough, uh, and just kind of uh, tangential to Eric's point here, uh, two uh, two other uh, professors that I uh, highly respect and have done some work with uh, that are actually both in uh, political science with uh, with a specialty in law went uh, to to Vanderbilt Law School. So uh, you know, from uh, from a very small sample, uh, it seems possible that uh, that. Uh, Vanderbilt Law is actually uh, turning out uh, social scientists as well, uh, which is not a bad thing by any stretch. Um, one, one other uh, uh, just uh, um, kind of uh, figure from our paper that I wanted to, uh, to point out that I think uh, has uh, some really stark implications, because we've been talking about the, the top 10 so much and talking about the top 10 law schools as feeders for, the, uh, as, as feeders for themselves, really. Uh, uh, but when we look at the numbers for Harvard and Yale in particular, I, I think there's something to be said for that because, you know, Stanford gets, uh, ranked as a, a, you know, is in the top three law schools every year. Um, I, I believe it's been two before, uh, but Harvard and Yale both have well over 150 of their, uh, former students as faculty in top 10 law schools. Uh, the next school after that, Chicago has right around, 50, uh, about a third of the number uh, from Harvard or Yale, and it goes down considerably after that. 
So not only are the top 10 law schools big feeders into the top 10 law schools, but Harvard and Yale are such juggernauts, they almost make uh, the output from all other schools seem uh, minimal. And that's a real problem. I mean, that's a real problem because they each have, both of those great law schools have distinctive things about them that are really good and, 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 and turn out great students. But they both also have severe limitations, not the least of which is, is, a, is, a, is a class-based component. Um, I don't know their diversity numbers. I'm guessing they're low. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't take much. And this is my last point on this about Harvard and Yale. If they changed dramatically, then Chicago, Stanford, Columbia, NYU, Duke would change also. And that's what's so frustrating. And that's why, you know, and we're and, and these these friends of mine at these schools who I'm like family with, you know, families fight. I, I was so and I told them this, I was so shocked by their answer that, well, why go outside the top ten when we can fill all of our needs within the top ten? And I said, define needs. So a Yale law professor I, I talked to but would not I could not quote, um, said to me. It's not surprising we turn out so many law professors. We, we teach people how to be law professors. And I said, how do you do that? And she said, we teach them how to write good law review articles. And I, I, my, I, my stomach went to my knees. And I wanted to follow up with, do you teach them how to be good committee members? Do you teach them how to be good recruiters? Do you teach them how to be good teachers, most importantly? And so on and so forth. Um, turned out she didn't return. She's not one of the friends. She didn't return my call. I just saw her at a conference. Um, but I honestly believe, and this I think we're all going to agree, is a major problem in legal education. What they want are people to write great law review articles, and that should be number 10 on the list. Well, to make it worse, Eric, the cynic in me can't help but wonder whether great, art, great law review articles here isn't being defined as law review articles likely to appeal to Harvard Law Review and Yale Law Journal. Yeah, I, I am sure it is. I, I, I am sure a spectacular article in Federal Rule of Evidence XX subsection three is not getting published by the Yale Law Journal very often. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's also something to be said uh, for this uh, reproducibility. And um, so not only is it uh, a, a nice thing to say that uh, we're hiring from the top 10 so that the top 10 schools are, are hiring from their own ranks. Uh, but the fact that then they have more students that went to their schools that are teaching in top schools. So that not only makes them look good from the, the standpoint of having uh, potentially you know scholars who are going to get cited over and over again, but also scholars that went to their schools, their particular schools that are then teaching in the top schools. So it, it kind of self-inflates the numbers to some extent um, by, by having this uh, penchant for hiring within the ranks. And, and then when you talk about, and all, all I can speak about is con law, federal courts, you know, the related topics. But so every year I get notes, letters, emails from Jack Balkin, from, you know, um, uh, Barry Friedman, NYU, um, a bunch of other people at those elite law schools recommending people. And they can, uh, Yale Law School has no, I don't think has a conservative faculty member, not a single one. Um, 
I mean, zero is my understanding. Now, maybe that's wrong, but, but certainly their con law faculty, you know, is, is all very, very, very left of center. Most of Harvard's is Goldsmith is there, but and there are a couple others, but most of Harvard's is. Um, I don't, I don't know about Stanford except for McConnell. Um, Chicago's an exception, and Columbia and NYU are full of liberals. They're going to reproduce liberals, and so Brian, I do want to make the point. This is not the point made in the paper. This is my next paper. I'm hoping maybe Adam will help sometime once we get this one published. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was accepted for publication two years ago, but once it actually comes out. Um, I, I think there might be – I've been trying to figure out this liberal conservative bias. Can I spend one minute on this? Because I, 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 shared recruitment this year. I shared recruitment this year for our con law position, and I, I could not be happier. I mean, I, I am ecstatic with joy over hiring um, um, Anthony Christ, who's going to be amazing, and everyone knows him, and he's great. Um, this has nothing to do with Anthony. I before, we got, before Anthony was in the pool, I asked my faculty if they would be upset if I tried to build a pool of conservative applicants because Georgia State University Law School has zero public law conservatives as we speak. Not one, not three, not six, zero. Private law, I can't say because they don't talk about public law matters. But in con law, federal court, civil procedure, you know, those kind of courses, we have zero. Anyway, my faculty was not as excited as I might have hoped. We're family, we get, we get along very well. But they did say, sure, go ahead, build a pool. So, uh, which was nice. So I call Michael McConnell, Randy Barnett, Jonathan Adler, a um, couple other law professors. And I even had Randy put me in touch with the person who's ahead of the Federalist Society's lawyer and, I mean, legal education division. And maybe it's not been totally lost and I'm kind of at loggerheads right now at the Federalist Society. Um, but I even talked to her. And said, send me your people. Send me your droves. I need, I need applicants. I need so many applicants, my school can't say no. At the end of the day, we had, and again, Anthony is, you know, walks on water as far as I'm concerned. We may have had 50 liberals, I think all of whom could have been great. Not as great as Anthony, but he would have been great. We had three conservatives. I mean, I had McConnell and Randy and Jonathan and the Federalist Society sending me people. We found three. Now, there was a fourth who wasn't on the market who I would have liked, taken a very serious look at. Um, There's a fifth who I reached out to as a um, he's a, a more experienced law professor. He wasn't interested. But in the entry level pool, there were three. I think what we're talking about today is directly relevant to that problem. And that's a problem. Well, just briefly, I wanted to return to an observation in the paper that I found really troubling, which was the extent to which LSAT scores are de facto driving legal uh, education hiring, not only at the top 10 law schools, but it seems to me kind of at law schools across the board, which I mean, I, I think for reasons that you know, we ought to be concerned about because there are really serious diversity issues there. But I also wanted to note kind of just, you know, even to the extent that people might think that arguably there even is some predictive capacity there. Um, at least anecdotally, I've noticed that an awful lot of law professors, even law professors who have gotten hired out of top 10 schools, turned out to be transfer students, implying that their initial LSAT scores actually weren't all that, but they managed to transfer anyway. And so I guess my question is, you know, even to the extent that we care about 
you know, the quality of legal scholarship already produced in the hiring process as an indicator of future scholarship. Does law school ranking actually do much in terms of predicting the quality of even the legal scholarship that people are going to be producing? Those are great questions, Brian. Um, You know, the legal scholarship world to me is so messed up (laughs) that I don't know. When you say quality, I assume you mean visibility because most quality legal scholarship is in the um, Georgia State and Tulsa and Florida law reviews, not the Harvard, Yale and Stanford law reviews. Um, The visibility is in the Harvard, Yale and Stanford law reviews. Um, And I I also want to say about the LSAT, I'm not sure I need the numbers to react to your position because my guess is although there are many law professors at top 10 law schools who transferred from a non-top 10 law school to a top 10 law school, my guess is those numbers are small compared to the people who started off at a top 10 law school. And if you don't ace the LSAT, you're not starting off at a top 10 law school. Yeah, I I think that um, the way we define quality has some significant implications here. Um, So we might think of what the goal of the scholarship is. Does, you know, does reaching the goal mean it's high quality? Does do citations matter? Is that is, is, you know, having it cited by uh, a federal court or the Supreme Court, is that the highest, you know, watermark of, of a quality paper? Um, So, you know, I, I, I think that, that, that the dimensions by which we define quality matter. And uh, if, if quality through citations um, makes a difference, then there there probably is something to be said for people that went to top law schools because they're being taught by the people who have been cited and they're being taught about the uh, the ins and outs of how to write in a way that's going to get cited. And they also have their names uh, associated with these professors and with the judges that they probably clerked with. Um, that already have these reputations. And so there, there is something about uh, name recognition and, and reputation that matter also that are not necessarily at all related to quality per se, but become so correlated with quality when we think of quality of citations that there's no real way to, to disentangle that. And of course, we all know that if, if the Chicago Law Review or the Stanford Law Review is looking at a set of papers and the resume of one set of papers is I went to Harvard, Yale or Stanford, or I teach at Harvard, Yale and Stanford. That's going to be, a, and, and should be maybe given second year students inability to make substantive cuts, a huge factor. So it's all one self-perpetuating cycle of elites teaching the elites, which coincidentally is the title of the piece. Well, so in closing, I wonder if the two of you could reflect on you know, what you see this process looking like going forward. I mean, on one level, are the people actually sort of, quote unquote, in charge of making these decisions, in your experience, at all concerned about the effects of their decisions? And I guess on a second order, do you see any kind of developments in the legal hiring process, at least potentially affecting the distribution of of hiring. And I'm thinking specifically of 
at least anecdotally, again, a sort of increasing focus on already produced scholarship in the hiring process, as opposed to sort of the perception of potential scholarship in the future. And and Eric, someone you mentioned like, like Anthony Christ is, I think, a great example of that. I mean, my impression is, I think, a correct impression is that a lot of people were really interested in him as a candidate, precisely because he's produced so much scholarship that's been so impactful and that that was sort of what made him a really strong candidate. And I wonder if that kind of potential change or expectation might operate at least to some degree to the benefit of potential candidates who don't necessarily have Harvard, Yale, or other top 10 uh, schools on their resume. Well, Anthony does have a PhD, you know, um, so he spent a lot of time writing as part of that program as well. But Anthony was not, I, I don't know this for a fact, but, and Anthony spent time in Georgia, so I know he was partial to Atlanta, but Anthony was not being courted by Duke and UVA. I don't think, because if he had been, I would have encouraged him to go there probably. Um, not that I didn't want him very badly at Georgia State. Um, I, I'm going to answer your first question, then turn over to Adam. Look, I sought out the people I thought would be the most conducive to being sympathetic to this issue at Harvard, Yale, and NYU. And very nice, I mean, these are all friends, so very nice discussions and all that. All three of them were, they basically said, this is not going to change. It's not going to change because there's too much to fight. There's too, many, there's too much standing in the way and there's too much work. And that was what they all emphasized, that if we enlarge the pool, one quick analogy. Um, I worked for Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher for a year and a half in Washington, D.C. And then my, one of my closest friends in the world became its hiring partner forever. And when I first, when I was at Gibson Dunn, Vanderbilt was the, and Emory were the two lowest schools they would hire at. If you were at a school lower ranked than Vanderbilt or Emory, you had no chance. Um, so I just snuck into Gibson Dunn. And for years, I tried to convince my friend after I left Gibson Dunn that you're doing this all wrong, that the number one or two or three person at Kansas or, or, or Tulsa or wherever is going to be as good as anybody you find at Harvard. Yeah. Um, and, and he finally took a chance. The number one person in Kansas, I believe, uh, that person did great. And from that point forward, though they didn't interview at those schools, they did take those people seriously. So I asked these people at Harvard, Yale, and NYU, but the number one person in Kansas is going to law school is going to be great. You know, the number seven person at Vanderbilt is going to be great. And you're not looking at those people <laughs> at all, ever. And their answer was too much work. So I'm not optimistic. And, and I, I can't speak uh, to this question from the same perspective as, as Eric, obviously. Um, you know, most of my work is, uh, is currently in the, the private uh, sector um, and with a little bit of uh, research writing and, and teaching on the side. Um, but what, from a, from a uh, methodological perspective, you know, I think it would be interesting somewhat to have longitudinal numbers so we can look at this question over time. Not that it's likely that there would be much difference if we looked at this over a 20-year period as opposed to kind of a static point in time, which Eric and I uh, took this question. But, um, you know, possibly five years down the road, it might be interesting to revisit if, uh, as things look like they may be doing, uh, the standardized testing procedures are changing somewhat so that the uh, GRE is uh, becoming a, a factor uh, where 
uh, students can take that in lieu of the LSAT, or as computerized testing uh, becomes more uh, commonly available, if, they, if the LSAT moves to a computer test where it's adapted uh, to the uh, test takers' uh, answers, you know, this this might change the framework somewhat. Um, it would be it'd be interesting to revisit this question over time and to be able to make comparisons. Now, if the numbers are 95% in the top, uh, then and they remain so, then the answer is things aren't changing. And my guess is if we looked at the past, things would look pretty similar to the way uh, they, they look today. But um, although, uh, as Eric said, uh, you know, it's hard to be hopeful that things are going to, uh, to change at the top, perhaps uh, aspects of the testing procedures are going to change somewhat which will uh, kind of force some more diversity, at least, into some of the top ranks if tests make that much of a, a difference. It's a possibility. It's a, uh, it's a small possibility, but it would be interesting to study and revisit at uh, some point down the road. Well, Eric, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing these observations with me and, and my listeners. And I look forward to future work on this subject uh, in, in later articles, because I think there's a lot to be said. And I think that this is a conversation we really need to be having in legal academia. Right, thanks for having us, Brian. It's great talking to you today. Great stuff, Brian. Great preparation. Thank you. Thank you.